Thank you so much once again for the invitation to join with you in worship this morning. Lovely to be back here and uh, uh, delighted to be back and rejoice with you in the refreshing rain that has come since we were last here. We indeed uh, thank God for his grace to us. I'm just moving that microphone away a wee bit, if that's still okay. Indeed there, thank you for that. That's all right. It's fine there. It's just like a lollipop there, and I'm tempted to lick it at times. Indeed there. I think uh, what, uh, what, what, what it is in that regard. Indeed there. Terrific. I'm sure you can still hear me. Indeed there. The last one to nod off, I'll nod off, so it's okay. Um, some of you, I'm sure, um, know of the ministry of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the esteemed physician who became probably the greatest preacher of the 20th century. And many of his sermons were transcribed into book form and therefore maintain his sermonic style. So when you read his books, uh, you get that awareness that he is actually preaching to you. The epistle of James is just like that. Because it's been suggested that the the, the content of this epistle first saw the light of day as a series of sermons proclaimed and preached by James. That James was at heart a preacher. And thus the call that you get from him Recorded in chapter 4 and verse 13. The words that often preachers use. Now listen. I'm using the NIV this morning if you're wondering where it's from. Now listen. He wants them to hear something he has to say to them which has wit and importance. And what he wants them to hear is given to us in verse 14. And the question is, what is your life? This is what he wants them to confront. This is what he wants them to consider. This is what he wants them to deal with in this message. And it's what I want you to consider as well here this morning. What is your life? And as Chris has uh, drawn your attention to, you'll find the answers that I'm proceeding to give and that outline at the back of your bulletin. Three little things relating to this whole question of life. And I begin with this, that life is incredibly short. In the whole span of things, life is short. And James highlights this point for us in at least two ways. He does it, first of all, to highlight or by highlighting our foolishness. Verse 13 of this fourth chapter of James. Now listen. You who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, Carry on business and save money. Why? 
You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. The British evangelist has written a a commentary on this by the name of uh, John Blanchard. You may know that name. And and Blanchard uh, unpacks these words in, in this clear manner. He speaks about their plan. Today or tomorrow. He talks about their place. Such and such a town. He talks about the period that they will go. We will go and spend a year. He talks about their program. We're going to trade. And he talks about their purpose. We're going to make a profit. Now James here is not suggesting that the planning and programming and making a profit is wrong. His point is, all this is done and being considered and planned without any reference to God or the recognition of life's uncertainty and brevity. In fact, such planning, such action only reveals their arrogance and their boasting. The thought that James picks up and brings out in the 16th verse. Yet what we see being illustrated here by James is surely the mindset of the world in which we all live and move and have our being. And that is for the natural man, for the ordinary person in the street, for the non-believer, the non-Christian, God is not in all of their thoughts. Some of you may remember the movie entitled Invictus. The story of how Nelson Mandela joined forces with the the captain of the South African rugby team, Francois Pinard, to help unite their country. Historical story. But what, what is Invictus? It's a famous poem by W.E. Henley. And in that poem, there is this conclusion. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Utter foolishness. Utter arrogance. Utter boasting. The combined arrogance and foolishness of the human heart. For, says James, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. The foolishness of our hearts. But then James brings out the aspect of our forgetfulness, not just our foolishness, but our forgetfulness. You know, those, those of us who are maturing in life uh, sometimes have uh, a battle with our frequent forgettery. I am now at that point in life of having to write myself notes But then my problem is I forget where I've left the note. (laughs) But forgetfulness, I'm sure, characterizes most of us. 
particularly our forgetfulness regarding the brevity of life. Someone said this, that no healthy man ever believes he's going to die. And not one of us here this morning, not one of us here in this room, has the assurance that we are going to live the years we would like to live. We have no assurance. How does James describe your life? How does James describe my life? The middle of verse 14. You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. A mist that appears for a little while and then gone. And we've all seen it, haven't we? You get up in the morning and you look outside and there's that, that gray gloom, this, this mist. The trees and the hills, the landscape are all shrouded and enveloped and draped by this gray blanket. But then the sun breaks through and and, and the gloom is gone. And and creation sparkles. Our our black and white world is now full of, of vivid, glorious living color. And the Lord through James says, this is your life. You appear. You're seen. You're known. You're appreciated. You're loved. But then suddenly, you're gone. Eternity has snatched you away. Your chair at the kitchen table now sits unoccupied. Your toothbrush sits in the bathroom unused. Your clothes hang lifeless in the wardrobe untouched. What is your life? It's a mist. It's a shadow. It's a breath. Forgive me if I'm repeating something, but... And one, one of my favorite television programs is entitled Aircraft Investigations. You watch it and you wonder whether you'll ever fly again. <laughs> but it's instructive and it's interesting. And it's tragic. In a recent episode, they examined the March 27th, 1977 Tenerife Airport disaster. A KLM Boeing 747 was gathering speed as it was heading down the runway for its takeoff, and it collided with the taxiing Pan Am 747. 583 people were killed. Many of the passengers were going to join a cruise ship. How many of them, do you think? While Checking in to board the aircraft when stowing their luggage in the upper compartment, when putting on their seatbelt, gave any thought to the brevity of life. And yet they only had seconds to live. So what of you? What of me? 
It's short. Life is short. And we have no control over it. For the truth is, apart from not knowing what will happen tomorrow, we do not even know what will happen today. We do not know what is going to happen this afternoon. We do not even know what is going to happen the next hour or even the next minute. My friends, life in the whole span of things is incredibly short. Yet, life is also intrinsically special. You see, man or humankind is not a nothing. We, we are not zeros. We are something. That while time is short and we appear but for a little while, the fact is, nevertheless, we do appear. Because we are heaven's handiwork. We are God's creation. We are not simply the result of time plus chance plus accident. Life, though short, is special. It is precious. Men and women are of worth. That while God's image in man has been marred by sin, it has not been totally obliterated. So that in terms of service and sacrifice, each life can, can have a tremendous uh, impact upon life. We, we can love and we can leave a lasting legacy. You only have to think of the, the Augustines of this world, the Luthers, the, the Bachs, the Handels, the Wilberforces, the Booths that have left their stamp on the world scene. And yet, tragically, the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Pol Pots and the Mediarmins have bloodied that same stage, illustrating the truth that sin has marred man's being. But we are created by God and we bear something of his image. And I couldn't help but think of it as we were singing our first hymn this morning, How Great Thou Art. The very senses that God has given to us. That through our eyes to, to, to behold a, a, a glorious sunset. Our ears to, to enjoy a delightful piece of music. The sense of, of smell, a, a glorious aroma. The taste of, of, of fish and chips and newspaper. You know, we, we have these facilities to be able to enjoy things. A heart that is moved by sadness or tragedy. A heart that overflows at times with, with joy and exuberance. We're not nothings. We are significant. We are special. We are created but we are corrupt because sin has poisoned every aspect of man's being. And the man in the street lives without God and therefore without hope in this world. All he has is this world. That's all he has. One only has to think of the 14th Sam, the fool, the fool. 
The fool in the Bible, does, it's the, the terminology there, it's, it's not related to intellect, it's related to morality. He has no time for God, and therefore the mark of the fool is he does not seek after God, he does not call upon God. Or you get the, 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 the rich fool in Luke 12, who, you know, the, the man who had so much he built bigger and better barns, and God says, this night your soul will be required of you. Fool, a terrible epitaph. You think of atheists, or more precisely, practical atheists. The person who does believe there is a God, but behaves and lives as though there were no God. The person who would say, oh yes, I believe, believe in some way or something, something there, but... They don't recognize a need for God. They have no hunger for God. They're not prepared to meet God. The practical atheist is just a dangerous person. That the kind of person who may be sitting here this morning. You believe in God. You maybe even believe in the church. And you're here. But in reality, there's little hunger or thirst for God in your life. You're here because it's tradition. You're here because it's Sunday. You're here because you were taught when you grew up to go to church. But there's no practical reliance upon and rejoicing in the living God. The practical atheists. We're created, we've been corrupted. And the terror is this. That we will continue somewhere forever. Death does not end it all in the sense of annihilation. Or we will lay our body down. We will fold up the tent in which we have lived. But we will all live somewhere forever. And so the Bible says that it is appointed unto man once to die. But after that, there's judgment. And Jim Elliot, one of the... Five Martyrs in Ecuador, 1956, simply says, when it comes time to die, make sure that's all you have to do. Make sure you've made preparation for what will happen after death. Make sure that when you die, that's all you have to do. Because God is there, and he is not silent. Life is special. For our desires in this life that will end will determine where our destiny will be in that life which will never end. We will continue. And therefore, because we are corrupt, we need to be converted. We need to be converted. What did Jesus say? Matthew 18. The words some of you may know, the authorized or King James Version. Except ye be converted and become as little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Or the translation of the NIV. Except you change. 
And the word used there is a word that means unless you turn, unless you repent. And one commentator illustrates it this way. I quote, in life, it's all a question of what man is aiming at. And if a man is aiming at the right thing. If a man is aiming at the fulfillment of personal ambition, the acquisition of personal power, the enjoyment of personal prestige, the exaltation of self, then he is aiming at precisely the opposite of the kingdom of heaven. If he ever wants to reach that kingdom, he must turn around And face the opposite direction. But how can he do this? How can we do this? We can't. In and of ourselves. But God is merciful and mighty. Because those words of Matthew 18.3 can also be translated... Unless you are changed, unless you are changed, that is changed by another party, it's not left up to us. It's the aspect of the need of another to change us. And my friends, the great news, the good news, the gospel news, that's the business God is in. God is in the business of changing people. God is in the business of changing hearts. God is in the business of changing lives. And so Jeremiah explains the procedure, the process as it were, as he prays, turn me that I may be turned. And the Apostle Paul Picking up that thought and that theme, what does he say to us? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is our responsibility. This is the way of salvation. To call for mercy, to call for God's might, to call for God's transforming power. Because we are saved not by our own might, but by God's mercy. And we're saved not by our own goodness, but by God's grace. And we're saved not by our own works, but by the cross work of Jesus Christ. And that underlines, you see, how special life is that Christ God's only begotten son gave his life that we might have life eternal life a life in relationship with God he gave himself for us that we may live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself For me, life is so special that God sent his son to bleed and die for us. And I wondered this morning, have you known that change? 
Have you known God working in your heart and your mind, turning you around from the way in which you are going, so that you're now heading home to the Father's house? Life is short. Life is special. But then thirdly, I think James answers the question and points us to the fact that life is inspiringly significant. That is, it has purpose. It has value. For God has made everything, you see, Everything God has created, he has created for himself and for his own glory. Which therefore raises the question, how do we live our lives for his glory? And I draw your attention to the 15th verse. Instead, says James, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, We will live and do this and do that. If it is the Lord's will, the Jacobean condition, or you may know it by two little letters. An older generation, I think, used it much more than the newer generation does. But how many times we used to, when we used to write letters, you know, with a pen and piece of paper and so forth, not a keyboard. And you'd write your letter and you'd put D-V, D-V, Deo Valente, if the Lord wills. For 2,000 years, Christians employed that. Whenever they would make a plan, whenever they would write or in conversation, you'd say, well, yesterday talking to some friends and saying, yes, I'm going down to... Kungala and Mafra at the weekend. Lord willing. Lord willing. What, what are we doing? What's so significant with this? Well, here is how we live significantly and spiritually to the glory of God. We live acknowledging that God has a will. We acknowledge God's will. That is, we live In the sunshine of his sovereignty. The comfort of knowing that he is in control of all things. Wind, waves and weather. So that we're not agitated by every journalist or made anxious by every activist. This is my father's world. He has made it. He sustains it. And he has a purpose for it. And if you want to know what that purpose is, read Romans chapter 8. We acknowledge God's will so that when we plan, we do so prayerfully. When we purpose, we do so humbly. And when we proceed, we do so dependently upon him who loves us and cares for us. To live in the acknowledgement of God's will, my friend, is to live in the certainty of his sovereignty and to live in the comfort of his security. Acknowledging his will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. 
This world is not out of control. This is our Father's world. And He's made it for His glory. And He's made it for a purpose. And as someone said, God never has any beads of sweat on His upper lip. He's never anxious. He's never caught out, surprised, or worried. Live in the acknowledgement of God's will. But then secondly, we live with the acceptance of God's will. You see, what is it that moves us and motivates us to declare with faith and hope and love if the Lord wills? Surely, it's the goodness of God that encourages us to accept his guidance for us. Why do I live saying, Lord, if it's your will? Because I know what God is like. His grace and his goodness and his mercy towards us. His providence towards us. Let let me try and illustrate it this way. Psalm 116, 12 and 13. You may remember the words. Let me refresh your memory. What shall I render to the Lord for all his goodness towards me? The question is asked by the psalmist. What will I I give back to God for everything he's given to me? Well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and I'm going to give him this and I'm going to give him that. No, 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 no. He says, I will take the cup of salvation. He's not giving God anything. He's taking something actually more, something further from God. He will take this, this cup, as he calls it, the cup of salvation. Now, let me give you some information. Psalm 116 is part of what is called the Hallel Psalms. The Hallel Psalms were sung during Passover. That was from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. So Jesus has Passover with his disciples. And Mark in his gospel says, after they had sung a hymn, they went outside. What did they sing? They sang the Hallel Psalms. They sang from 113 to 118. In other words, Jesus has just been singing. What shall I render to the Lord for all his goodness towards me? I will take the cup of salvation. What happens after he has Passover with disciples? He goes to the garden. And he prays. As with great drops of blood. And he says, Father, if this cup pass from me, but Lord, not my will, yours be done. What was he talking about? He was talking about the cross, he was talking about crucifixion. He was talking about all that awaited for him. And he says, Father, I will take from you what you have prepared for me. The agony, the humility. And he takes the cup of God's wrath and he drinks it dry 
for us. He takes what God had purposed for him in his coming. He drinks the cup. And therefore for us, my friends, by taking the cup of salvation that David spoke of, we are accepting with faith and meekness and gratitude all that God and his providence has prepared for us. Willingly accepting his will, that without murmur or complaint we grasp with trembling hands God's will for our lives. We express the words of Job. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what it means to accept God's will. Horatius Bonner in his lovely hymn put it this way. Take thou my cup and with joy or sorrow fill as best to thee may seem. Choose thou my good and ill. And beloved, I wonder whether we're prepared for that this morning. Are we prepared to say before God this morning, Father, your will, not mine, be done. Grant to me that grace and that enabling to receive from your hand, to take what you give me, to take what you give me, even though I may not understand it all, but grant me that grace to humbly receive what your good hand would bestow upon me. That is what glorifies God. That's what magnifies God. That's what we're created for. And so thirdly and finally, there is the activation of God's will. What does James want them to listen to? What is your life? He wants them to listen to something that he'd already preached on before. He, he's, he's repeating, as it were, uh, an old sermon here. He's refreshing it again in the, in, in the midst of the congregation. Because you look at these interesting words of verse 17. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. What's he getting at here? Here, were these, here was this congregation of the Lord's people who knew what they ought to do, but were failing to do it. This congregation was saying to James, their preacher, what you may be saying in your mind to me or regarding me this morning. Brian, nice to see you again. Nice to have you with us again. Nice little sermon, but we've heard it all before. There's nothing new. We've heard it all before. And I'm quite sure that you have. But let me apply James's conclusion. You know the right thing. You've heard it all before. 
are you doing it? You know what to do. You've heard it before. But are you living in obedience to it? Has the word of God that you heard last Sunday changed you during the week? Is God's word changing you? Because you see, it's not hearers of the word who please and glorify God, but those who heed it, those who do it, those who apply it. So it's not just sitting, listening, and then going on as you've always gone, but my friends, for each of us, preacher and people alike, the question is, Are we heeding what we've heard? Or are we just hearers? If you're not heeding, then James says, you're sinning. If you're not activating the truth that is granted to you. So what is your life? It's short. It's special. It's significant. And therefore my final questions are these. Do our lives spread forth the fragrance of a spirit given holiness and humility and dependence and faith? Or do our lives give out the odor of self-born arrogance and independence, and hypocrisy. Is there the stench of us doing our thing? Or the scent of humbly submitting to God's will for our lives? Let's pray together. Father, write your word upon our hearts, we beseech of thee, and grant us understanding in it, and by your grace, the transforming power of your words in our lives, that our Father, we may not simply be those who take on board what we hear in the sense of information to be considered and contemplated and argued and debated, but a life-giving word that shapes us, that transforms our minds and causes us to become more and more like your Son. Have mercy upon us, we pray of you, and speak to us clearly, powerfully, and transformingly, we ask through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.